0: so good afternoon we are i think officially at about the halfway point so congratulations for getting this far whatever unexpected things may have happened so far there's more coming I wanted to speak a little this afternoon on this theme that Andrea brought up yesterday of what we both have been calling (laughs) the peculiar state of the human condition, or what it means to be fully human. (laughs) We're such a strange lot. We all really want to be happy, we want to find a real true sense of happiness, but we're all mixed up about what that means and in particular I think mixed up about where real happiness lives. So in the instruction this morning, you heard a little bit about the uh, attending to what's the Pali term is Vedana, the pleasant or unpleasant tone of each moment of experience. And we begin to pay attention and open our attention to sensation, sound, smell, sight, thought, emotion, we notice that every moment of experience, that's better, is, has a kind of valence. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or it's referred to as neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral, For most of us, neutral is not such a big deal. Neutral is what we might refer to as boring. Those are the experiences that kind of fly under the radar. But we imagine that happiness will be ours if we can just get and hold on to somehow, gather around us, lots of pleasant experience and we can somehow get rid of, push to the sides, ignore, rebuff, unpleasant experience. And this misunderstanding, and let me say, there is nothing wrong with pleasant experience. For any of you who've had a moment or two or more of pleasant experience today or yesterday or any time in your life, please enjoy. Because pleasant experience is fleeting, you may have noticed. And when we engage in this kind of reactive, habitual way of trying to get, I say, get the good stuff and get away from the bad stuff, what this does is create a kind of frenetic churn of activity skimming across the surface of our life. So I talked the other day about this, these two dimensions of horizontal and vertical. And a lot of our momentum, a lot of our habitual activity is fueled by this pursuit. Now, if I could only get the ear thing to be right, it would all be perfect, right? <laughs> I would be really happy. (laughs) Yeah. So you get the picture. Pleasant, wanting, grasping. Unpleasant, not wanting, rejecting. This creates a kind of constant, I don't know what you call that. It's like a motor churn, right? We're like reverberating all the time. And we think that if we just a little better, a little harder, a little something, then happiness will be ours, but actually it doesn't work. And many of you perhaps are onto this enough that you've showed up here at this retreat because that kind of activity doesn't make us happy. What does it do? It makes us really busy. And as a consequence of being really busy, we're really tired. Tired, tired, tired. (laughs) And in addition to being busy and tired, some part of us, some little seed of wisdom, understands there must be something else. And that's something else I've been describing so far as this opportunity to drop, to drop vertically. That's like the direction to what we're calling, I'm calling something else, something more. And most of us somewhere in us have a very deep yearning because that dropping vertically is not about going anywhere. It's about coming home. It's about landing here. It's about arriving it's about coming out of that churn of wanting and not wanting and grasping and pushing away and all of the, there's a great word called papancha, which means mental proliferation, all of the stories and ideas and of who we are and what it means and all that stuff that we move, put around our activity. And this vertical drop allows us to move out of that and into the immediacy of the body, of the heart and the mind here, not some other place, not some slightly self-improved version of you. So you may have discovered, I heard in the groups that I met with today, and have certainly heard from many yogis in the past, and (laughs) absolutely the case in my own experience, that this path, this movement from churning across the surface to dropping vertically is, uh, well, if we put it mildly, we would say not so easy. So just to want to say out loud, because other people in the groups that I was in today were so relieved to find out, other people are having a hard time too. Not only are other people having a hard time, but actually having a hard time is part of the deal. You don't get to fully be yourself without it. Some of you know, in the, the work of uh, Joseph Campbell who studied myths and stories across all kinds of different cultures, languages, uh, times and places. And as he studied those stories, he saw a pattern and he called that pattern, the monomyth. And in the monomyth, it's the story of the human experience. It's an archetypal story. Of the human experience and I'm not going to talk about it in in a lot of detail but just to, to name that there is a phase of that journey this is archetypal human journey archetypal human experience across all time and place and culture and language you get the idea there's this thing called the struggle it's part of the path so if you find yourself having some difficulty, guess what? You're here. You're on the path, you're right on track. I'm not asking you to like it. But you can at least relieve yourself of that extra layer of what's wrong with me? How come I'm not getting it right? Everybody else looks like they're doing it right. You know how it goes, like that. It's not only difficult, right? I, I would venture to guess that everyone in this room, for ma- no matter how difficult ha- has been for you in all different flavors, there have also been moments of contentment, of delight, of insight, of spaciousness, of ease, of peace. <laughs> this is what it means be human. We are this odd combination of difficulty and boundless wonder and beauty. There is The the Chinese character for human is a stick figure. It's literally stretched between heaven and earth. It's kind of an image of, on one side, our infinite potential. This is really another way to say this, is what Andrea spoke about the first night, as um, when we take refuge in Buddha, or we take refuge in our own Buddha nature. We taking refuge in this sense of enormous possibility for awakening, for freedom, for peace, that lives in us, as us. That's part of the deal. That's our inspiration, that's our hope. And that's not the only part. There's also the uh, other side of our experience as being, of being human, which is kind of, we might say, our animal instincts and our, and I, don't, I mean, don't mean that, there's a lot of things that are good about animal instincts, but there's a kind of habitual reactivity that is bound in fear and hatred, and that creates a lot of the misery that we see in the world. And I know that for a day maybe, or two, you've been unplugged, I hope, from what's going on out there. But I uh, have looked at the news a few times. And It's amazing to see what I'm speaking of in full display. We have literally, you know, Olympic gold. We have humans accomplishing the most extraordinary things. Amazing. This is like our our possibility. Breaking records left and right. Extraordinary. And we also have one after another story of division and hatred of racism and injustice which is it there is a technical term i think for this experience this spread that we we as a species embody <laughs> The technical term is weird. (laughs) It's weird, isn't it? Like, how is this possible? Really? That brilliant? That inane? Like, how does that? But here it is. We're here to see it outside. We're here to experience it inside. (laughs) I looked up the word weird it just kept bubbling up. That's how I was feeling about my own experience. This is so weird. So I looked up weird. And it's, uh, it's actually a Germanic term. And uh, it's the Old English root of the word means something like destiny or fate. And the way that it was conjured was that there were these kind of uh, external figures called the fates who were somehow in cr- control of our destiny that was the way it was understood and uh, it struck me that when we sit in a meditation retreat it it becomes so clear so quickly that we are not in control (laughs) of what's going on, right? So it would make sense that we would sort of make up these figures to whom we are giving over, you know, the fates who are somehow, you know. So it's useful to understand that we're not in charge, but in this same kind of paradoxical straddle, it's also the case that we can influence what's happening. We can, as Andrea was saying yesterday, not necessarily control what arises in our experience, but we can say direct our attention to hearing or seeing or sensing or breathing. So, which is it? Are we in control or not? Are we good or bad? We are weird, right? We're this odd combination of all of that. So, I thought that it would be uh, helpful to say a little bit about the Buddha's experience or the story maybe, the myth of the Buddha's experience with difficulty. Just so that you get a sense that this is uh, really not just you. And I always think, wow, if the Buddha had this kind of trouble, then okay. And also the story, the mythic story of the Buddha's encounters with Mara That story has some pointers for how to work with uh, our own difficulties. So the story is that the Buddha uh, sat down and decided he wasn't going to get up until he understood. Until he understood suffering and the end of suffering. In other words, he wanted to find out what it takes to be really happy. Maybe some of you can relate to this in your own version, in your own language. Right? So he said, I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm, I'm not going to get up until I understand, until I see clearly for myself. And he had tried lots of stuff. Maybe others of you have also tried lots of stuff before he came to this Very simple radical move, like sit down and pay attention. So when he sat down, it turns out he had trouble too. And uh, there is in the story, in the sort of mythic story, as opposed to the historical story of the Buddha, this interesting figure named Mara who shows up. And Mara does all kinds of stuff, Mara throws stones and shoots arrows and and you know attacks the buddha with armies and tries to seduce him out of his seat all kinds of things so mara in other words can come in all kinds of shapes and forms and yours may be different than the person sitting next to you and also whatever your form of mara might be today may be different than it was yesterday or last week or 10 years ago mara is uh, very clever. And he, she, it, they are a shapeshifter. So uh, we have to stay alert, notice the various ways that Mara may be showing up. There is in the um, uh, traditional description of the kinds of difficulties that happen in retreat There's what some of you know as the, or have heard of as the five hindrances, and yesterday Andrea spoke specifically about uh, two in particular, which are kind of these energetic challenges in the body. Of the the uh, tug and pull between sleepiness, heaviness, drowsiness, and high energy, restlessness, agitation, and You know, some of us lean into one as opposed to the other, but often they flip back and forth. And in many ways, in the first day or so of a retreat, it's as if the energy body is kind of trying to recalibrate. It's trying to find its way. And so there is this kind of odd, sometimes inability to sleep, sometimes inability to stay awake. You kind of get yanked around from side to side. So that's a physical manifestation. Those are the first two hindrances. The second two are <coughs> connected to what I was speaking about with, uh, of greed and aversion. And greed shows up a lot as the wanting mind, wanting more of something. And also there's a version of it that is sometimes referred to as the if-only mind. You may have run into this. If only my knee didn't hurt. If only I got a full night's sleep. If only I wasn't so agitated or restless. If only I didn't keep nodding off. If only the person next to me would... Right. If only. This is a kind of interesting greed mind that's wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting, pulling for something else. And the other side is the mind of judgment. This is pernicious. It's a good word, isn't it? Meaning the judgment that comes is not just uh, you saying, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad meditator. You may have some of that. But it also can get very subtle. Judgment that comes, these are sort of different voices of Mara. Judgment can come as a voice that says, wrong, bad, you're not doing it right, everybody's better than you, whatever. But it can also come as just a mood. (laughs) I tell this funny story, but I have had the experience before where I'm walking around in my life, just, you know, kind of happy, normal. (laughs) And then I catch a glimpse of myself, like in a window or something. And it's very fast and almost doesn't register, but something in me says something like, who is that old person? There's <laughs> something kind of horrified inside. And I don't, it happens so fast that I often don't really even recognize it, except for then like two blocks later, I suddenly notice that where I was in a perfectly good mood a few minutes ago, all of a sudden I'm like really kind of grumpy and, nothing looks right and like that. So if you notice your, a, a mood shift like that, it may be that there was a some kind of a Mara judgment that you missed that was quiet. Right? So you could check that out. You can also watch for Mara as just sometimes it shows up as contraction in the body. There, and there may not be any words that go with it, but there's something that so you can check it out and see. Is there something that you're resisting? Is there something like that? So Mara, again, comes in many shapes and forms. And um, the fifth of these hindrances is doubt. And doubt is, I often think of, as kind of Mara's trump card. This is, doubt is considered the most, slippery and insidious form of hindrance and in the story of the Buddha doubt comes to the Buddha as a little voice that sits on his shoulder and says (laughs) who do you think you are he doesn't say you're an idiot you should give it up you know you're a terrible meditator you're not doing it right he goes right, this is the voice of doubt, goes right to our sense of, is it really, you really think that you, you could do this practice? Come on. Right? So this is another of the voices of Mara. And here's the secret. All of these, in particular, are the voices of uh, judgment and doubt the intent of that voice is to keep you in your box. Whenever you're in a situation where you're beginning to uh, expand, to have a sense of yourself and your experience that's outside what may be normal for you, maybe a little weird, uh, it's pretty likely that some aspect of this voice of Mara is going to show up because Mara's main function is to maintain homeostasis. So you could imagine the Buddha right on the edge of waking up and here comes Mara saying, no, no, I've got to do whatever I can to keep him like, not, not awake, not fully happy, not fully alive, not free. Why? Because being awake and fully happy and fully alive for Mara is scary. Yikes. (laughs) Mara is afraid. Fear is the seed that is generating so much of the hatred and the violence and the division in our world. And we have to find another way to meet that. Because fear is, it's part of our animal instinct. It can be very, very useful. But we don't wanna be run around by just that, right? So in the story, when Mara comes to the Buddha and says, who do you think you are? The Buddha doesn't go, hey, (laughs) I am the Buddha. (laughs) Like, knock it off, dude because actually at that moment, he's not the Buddha. At that moment, he is an ex-prince and an ex-ascetic. So he had been part of, he had done all the the sort of normal ascetic practices of his time and they didn't satisfy him. So at some point he, he left and he went off and he practiced on his own. He was kind of ostracized almost. So he, there he is kind of out on a limb all on his own and then comes the inner doubt. Uh, who do you think you are? And uh, in, the, in the text he reaches down and touches the earth. It's a beautiful gesture. And you can uh, impute as you wish into what that means. For me it's changed many times over the years. Maybe it's it's okay for me to to take my seat. It's okay for me to be here and be myself. Maybe the Buddha is saying, this is who I am. I am deeply and intricately connected to the earth. Because that kind of connection is the opposite of the divisiveness, the hatred that fear breeds. Those are examples. And you might consider for yourself, when you're under an attack from Mara, what would it mean for you to reach down and touch the earth? What is that inner gesture for you? So, um, I thought I would share with you uh, two dreams that are came to me, as I think of, sometimes dreams come as a kind of deep wisdom that have pointed the way, and I hope will offer you some guidance about what to do when we are in unpleasant, difficult, or scary circumstances. What's the option that we have to putting up walls? Internal walls and external walls. This is not a good strategy. If we want to free ourselves from fear, uh, putting up walls is like staying at the surface, churning across the surface. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of energy. And oh, by the way, it doesn't work. So let's find a different way. And I might suggest that, in many ways, that is exactly what we're doing here, all of us, together. We are looking for another way, a different path, to deal with the real difficulty, the real difficulty that each of you faces every day, in every sitting, in your bodies, in your hearts, in your minds, and that we all collectively are facing in our world. So here's the first dream. So in this dream, I'm in a room. It's about the size of that corner right there. <clears throat> and I'm crouched in the corner of the room like this kind of ugh. And the reason that I'm crouched in the corner of the room is because it's crawling with bugs. It is so disgusting. And and I just in the dream I'm like receding further and further and sort of my version of try, if I could put up walls I would right trying to get yeah, bugs all of a sudden in the dream the door opens and one of my old dear teachers walks in and he looks around he sees me on the floor crouching and he looks around at all the bugs and he says it's just bugs <laughs> <laughs> And in the dream, the me in the dream that's crouching in the corner was like, oh, it's just bugs. It's good, huh? (laughs) So whatever it is you've got, sleepy mind, judging mind, painful knee, repeating stories, whatever you've got, it's just what it is. And if you don't do what I was doing in my dream, in your version of that, it's just what it is, right? So this is a, this is a suggestion about being able to receive your experience with non-reactivity. Because yeah, sometimes you're gonna be in a room with bugs. It's gonna happen but you don't need to curl yourself into a little ball and squirm and try doesn't help, not helpful. Okay, so you got that first part. Here's the second dream. This one's even better. So the first dream is about bugs. The second dream is about a puppy. Okay, animals play a good role here. So in this dream, I'm walking in the countryside, It's beautiful countryside, kind of like where we are here. And uh, as I'm walking along green fields, white picket fence, you know, country, anyway, you get the idea, sunny, warm. Uh, I I come to a house and uh, on the porch of the house that's in a little bit of distance, but not so far that I can't see, a woman walks out onto the porch And she signals for me to come in to the house. So I go up the path to the porch and she greets me silently and she indicates for me to come in and she leads me to the kitchen of this beautiful old farmhouse. And uh, lo and behold on the floor of the kitchen is a big basket of puppies. (laughs) This is pleasant. Right, so we have bugs, yuck. Puppies, who can like resist a puppy? These are like the cute, you know, that perfect little ball of love puppy. So it's clear without saying anything that my job is to pick the puppy for me. I gotta pick my puppy. So I'm looking and playing and petting and I see, here it is, it's very clear, my puppy. So I pick this adorable little ball of puppy love up out of the basket and I pick it up and I'm holding it up and the puppy is looking at me and I'm looking at the puppy and all of a sudden, bangs! Ah, the puppy is mean. <laughs> and so in the dream, the me in the dream is like, ah! and I'm holding the puppy and then I have this insight And the insight is very simple. The insight is, oh, the puppy is scared. You see the metaphor? You get get it? And in my insight moment, I realize what to do. So I see the puppy, oh, the puppy is scared. And then I hold the puppy, hold the puppy, hold the puppy, steady, patient. This is what Andrea was speaking about last night, so beautiful as we might call being with, being with, being with. And as I'm holding the puppy, being with, with my full attention, right, full presence, being with the puppy, the puppy begins to melt and it turns into a baby. And the baby I take into my you know, heart and hold and rock the baby. Good dream, huh? Yeah. So not only is it possible to not be reactive to difficult stuff, but when we have this capacity to stay with, be with, be with, be with, whatever it is that's happening will change, it will transform, it will continue to grow and flow flow and reveal its aliveness. So I hope that those two dreams will give you some uh, hints about how to be with your own uh, difficulty. But I want to say another piece, which is, uh, again, Andrea referred to last night, that this kind of non-reactivity and even this being withness should not, please, do not confuse it with passivity. Because passivity is not what's needed. What's needed is non-reactivity. What's needed is clear, steady presence. What's not needed is fatalism. Oh well, there's nothing I can do. It is true that you are not individually, solely in charge. (laughs) You all have got that. But it is also true that you individually and we collectively can have an impact. And the reason that we can have an impact is because we are intricately and infinitely connected. That's why the divisiveness that we hear and see and feel so painfully in our world, that's why it's so painful because it's wrong. It's not true. It is a rip in the web of our shared humanity. So I had this uh, story come up, me- story memory, come up yesterday that I, I think will give an example of this. This being non-passivity in the face of some difficulty. This isn't a dream. This was a real story about a little under a year ago. uh, My mother was in the hospital. She was having a kidney uh, infection. And um, it was very difficult and scary, the whole of it. And uh, at some point, they had pumped her full of a lot of water to try to wash the infection through. And so she got very bloated. And then after that, they gave her a bunch of diuretics, and all the water went out. And she got very kind of shriveled. And on that morning, the morning of her being kind of shriveled, I arrived at the hospital to see her and I walked in her room and she was kind of sitting up in bed combing her hair and she had this very childlike kind of appearance and gaze and um, I said hello and asked how things were going and she said, well, um, I got my test results and I said, oh, what kind of test results? And she looked at me very blank in a way, and open, and said, well, I have cancer. Now, inside of me, it was like, I was trying to think of, a, of an image, but it was like a pinball machine. I just played a game of pinball recently, and you know how the ball goes <laughs> That was what was happening inside. And if the ball bounces around long enough, then sometimes it hits the jackpot and the whole machine, like the lights go on and everything's, that's what was happening inside. So I was being with, being with, being with, I'm with her and I'm also with this massive pinball machine thing going on inside me. And I So what do you do, right? So I said, really? Are you sure? She said, yeah, they came and this, they gave, brought me the test results this morning. More pinballs, right? And I said, let me go check with your nurse. So I went outside to the nursing station and the nurse was in a meeting, was gone, and I was, you know, uh, 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 ready to throttle anybody, you know? Because I was scared and I was upset. And, um, anyway, I said, so, uh, did my mother in room, whatever it was, 227, get some test results? She said she got some test results this morning. And they said, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, could you check her chart? You know, the nurse is in here. would we'll check her chart. And um, they looked and they were like, yeah, it doesn't look like anything. And I said, well, just so you know, she thinks she has cancer. And then, you know, then they woke up a little bit and were looking and they were like, no, no, no. That's not what's going on. So thankfully, right, all of this was because of confusion. She was confused. This is... This is the kindness of the Buddha's understanding of us as human beings. That the reason that we behave badly is because it's not because we're bad. So when you hear that voice in you, please tell it to stop. It's not because we're bad, it's because we're confused. And in our confusion, we can get rattled. And in those moments of getting rattled, if we really want to make it worse, we can be reactive. You could imagine different outcomes to that story I just told. If I had gotten really upset with her, she would have gotten more upset. If I had gone and started yelling at the nurses because I was so upset, they probably wouldn't have even talked to me, right? So this is being with, being with, being with, right? And it doesn't mean we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we go, Oh, cancer. Okay. No. What's needed as we meet our experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but particularly difficult experience, is this kind of steady awareness. This being with, being with, being with. But it's not just steady awareness. It's a steady awareness that has what I tend to call a fierce kind of love in it. And that love is what allows us to stay close. The awareness gives us some space. It gives us a little bit of breathing room from our own reactivity. But the awareness, we don't want it to go too far away so that we're just kind of Uh, like passively observing our lives from a distance like oh there's that pain in my shoulder oh well no it's we're being with the pain but we're being with it with this tender close intimacy we're staying close in to our experience and when we stay close in in that way we are reconnecting we're bridging those rips in our own mind and body and heart. Those places where fear has pulled us apart from ourselves, from each other, from the world. And this is just extraordinarily beautiful and important healing work. We don't meet our experience with steady awareness and I call what I call fierce love because I don't, we don't talk about love so much in Buddhism and I think we could reclaim the word a bit. And I don't mean love like Hallmark card kind of, you know, pink flowers and smiley faces and being nice. This is not about being nice. I don't mean love as a feeling. I mean love as a force. Love is what makes those strands of the web that is the truth of our connectedness, that's what those strands are made of. And when we reconnect to that in us, we are reconnecting to something very big and very powerful. So I want to um, share a poem with you that I found that speaks to this. It speaks to both the kind of um, straddling of uh, paradox, of opposite ends of our experience that we are asked to take on. In this case, uh, the poet is talking about suffering and hope, difficulty and potential or possibility And he, too, speaks of what I described as fierce love. Uh, He calls, it's a beautiful term, he calls disciplined love, which is another way to think about it. The poem is called uh, Tomorrow's Child uh, by Ruben Alves. And I would invite you, as you listen uh, here, just not to try too hard, but to practice this relax, receive, allow, and just to let the words and the images wash through you and see, does does anything land? Is there any resonance for you without, you know, needing to get it all? Let's just see how it uh, comes through for you. So here's the poem. Tomorrow's child, he writes... What is hope? It is a presentiment that imagination is more real and reality less real than it looks. It is a hunch that the overwhelming brutality of facts that oppress and repress us is not the last word It is a suspicion that reality is more complex than realism wants us to believe, that the frontiers of the possible are not determined by the limits of the actual, and that in a miraculous and unexpected way, life is preparing the creative events which will open the way to freedom and to resurrection. But the two, suffering and hope must live from each other. Suffering without hope produces resentment and despair. But hope without suffering creates illusions naivete, and drunkenness. Let us plant dates. Even though we who plant them will never eat them, we must live by the love of what we will never see. This is the secret discipline. It is a refusal to let our creative act be dissolved away by our need for immediate sense experience and it is a struggled commitment to the future of our grandchildren. Such disciplined love is what has given prophets, revolutionaries and saints the courage to die for the future they envisaged. They make their own bodies, the seed of their highest hope. So this is a way of considering a big picture, of considering what it is that we're doing here. We are planting moment by moment as we're willing to sit and be with and be with and be with be with lovingly, be with intimately our moment-to-moment experience. We're planting Buddha seeds. We're planting the seeds of our highest potential, of what's possible for us. And we're doing that often as we walk through the mud. That's where you plant the seeds. And this work that all of you are doing is so deeply, deeply needed. It's not needed for you to just have a little time out and time to rest on retreat. And I hope for those of you who came in tired, that that happens. But that's not all that's going on here. There's something much bigger, broader, wider that's happening. That as we do this hard, bumpy work of planting these seeds, of showing up moment by moment, we're cultivating this quality, this capacity of awareness that's already here. We're reconnecting to something that is ours. And we're reconnecting to this love again not as a feeling but as the truth of our connectedness we're reconnecting to that so that we have the courage and the strength and the capacity as we leave as we walk back into the world to bloom to as best we can take action engage in ways that will help not just us but all of us communally collectively begin to stitch this very frayed fabric of our shared humanity back together again. So let's sit for a few minutes together. Suffering without hope produces resentment and despair. But hope without suffering creates illusions, naivete, and drunkenness. Let us plant dates. Let us plant dates even though we who plant them Will never eat them. We must live by the love of what we will never see. This is the secret discipline. It is a refusal to let our creative act be dissolved away by our need for immediate sense experience, and it is a struggled commitment to the future of our grandchildren. Such Disciplined love is what has given prophets, revolutionaries, and saints the courage to die for the future they envisaged. They make their own bodies the seed of their highest.